0: Hi there. Karen here. The episode you're about to hear was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. As a result, you may experience varying microphone levels. Thanks for understanding and thanks for listening. It's 1943 in London. You're at a charity dinner to support war orphans. Your husband, a senior bank accountant, just made a generous donation. It was one of the night's biggest, in fact, calculated to outdo certain business frenemies. You watch the other women playing cards in a candlelit lounge, listening to a record that you once loved, but which fails to move you now. You barely even register the melody. You're alone, watching everything from a doorway, one foot in and one foot out. You are trained to live in doorways, to watch from unwatchable places. You don't even realize you're doing it. You know everyone here and well, but they no longer know you. All they know is that you've been on a nature expedition in South America, a trip to indulge your hobbies, That's what they believe, at least, because that's what you told them. But all along, you were in France, working with the maquis, the French resistance, couriering messages sewn into your skirts. Your impeccable French, ready charm, and ever-present stash of baguettes fooled the occupying German forces into believing that you were an innocent young altruist, the baker's sister, just making daily rounds delivering bread to widows and nuns. For months, no, years, you've risked your life for the Allied forces, for the cause, for your country, for yourself, an eluded discovery, a nearly flawless record, nearly. Now you're back home, resuming familiar wifely roles, recast with new lines, and all you have to show for it is a limp, that you say came from misstepping on a South American incline when you lost your nerve. (laughs) If only they knew. I'm Dr. Karen Bellinger, anthropologist, historical archaeologist, and wannabe time traveler. Welcome to Season 2 of Working Over Time the podcast that examines society through the lens of work, over time, and across cultures. We have a killer new season coming your way, jam-packed with fascinating historical and yet always contemporary-minded conversations with a range of guest experts. We're kicking things off today with Danielle Wurzanski, who illuminates the astonishing world of Britain's World War II women spies. That's right. We're going to hear about all kinds of state sanctioned espionage, a few eyebrow raising Winston Churchill quotes, and all about a figure named Blonde Poison, who, despite her name, is not a Marvel superhero. Not yet, at least. So, let's get down to it, shall we? Danielle has a BA in theater, a BA in English, creative writing, and an MA in history from Florida State University. She's a member of the Georgia Association of Historians, the Society for Military History, and the Women's Intelligence Network. She serves as the Early Childhood Education Program Coordinator for the Jewish Community Alliance, and as the project manager for the Rosenstrauss Foundation, which works to honor the memory of the women protesters of the infamous Rosenstrauss protest in Berlin in 1943. She's excited to be joining the faculty of the History Department at Jacksonville University this fall as well. One of Danielle's main research interests is the women spies of the Special Operations Executive, a World War II British agency that was the very first to actively use women spies in the field in sizable numbers. And so today, we're going deep undercover to talk espionage in World War II Britain, ladies' style. Thanks so much for joining me today, Danielle. It's my pleasure to be here. Spies are are pretty um, common fodder for for fiction and, and all sorts of adventures, but I don't know how often we focus on, on the women who've been involved in this, in this work in the past. So this is gonna be really great. And it would be terrific if you could first give us some context, sort of a lay of the land historically and culturally um, what was going on in Britain at this time period, you know, particularly as it pertains to the development and practice of espionage and female spies in particular?
1: Sure. So I think it's really important when looking at this time period, especially with women's spies, is to sort of look at how gender roles in Britain were during this time. And it's hard not to start back in World War One and to see how that led into the shape of World War II. This was really the first war where the government needed women and where women were actually allowed to step up and get involved and to work and come out of the the private sphere and to come out and do work. And women were very excited to be doing that and were so excited to have new opportunities. And then when the war ended and we were in the interwar years, there was major, major repression going on where men and the government didn't want women out of, out of the homes they wanted to push them back in. So basically the dominant forces in society, which were men in government, they were really holding on to the idea that women's roles in society hadn't actually changed because of World War I, that women had just like dipped their toe into the public domain only for the greater good. So now that the war was over, they were being pushed to retreat and to return to the domestic domain that had always been there. So this brought about, you know, this reassertion of a model of womanhood that was grounded in domesticity. So when World War II came about, the government knew pretty early on that they were going to need the help of women and that women actually could step up to the occasion and meet the demands of the government. But the government wanted to go about it in a different way for World War II than they had gone about in World War I because when the war ended, they wanted to be able to push women aside very easily and not have the same struggle that they had had during the interwar years to repress women. And they ended up sort of drafting women to, not oh. sort of, they did draft the women um, because the situation became that desperate and they needed more help. But by emplacing this draft rather than like really heavily recruiting women, they were able to control where women worked and what kind of work they would be allowed to do. So by doing that, they could try and avoid the mistakes of World War One that allowed women to feel like they had the latitude to continue working even after the war had ended. the way that they set this draft up was the legislation that they created allowed women to sort of keep their primary role as mothers and wives and that in turn meant that women's unequal position in the workforce was perpetuated and basically given official sanction so all women that were age 19 to 40 had to register to work and later in the war that ended up increasing up to 50 year old women as well and then those women didn't know that yeah wow And these women were then channeled into specific jobs and they couldn't change those jobs without permission from the local labor exchange. Single women were considered mobile because they had no dependents, so they would be forced to move to work anywhere that they were needed, while married women or those with children were considered immobile and were found local work to do. This put so much pressure on women that were mothers because after 12-hour workdays they were still expected to come home and take care of their children and do all the tasks they normally would have done if not working and they didn't generally have the support of their husbands or spouses because they were off at war. So women were actually allowed to be involved in service as they hadn't been in World War 1 there were all of these agencies that were founded during World War 2 specifically for women to be able to help but they weren't supported so women in in the service like they could do all the calculations they needed to to shoot a gun or move the gun in the direction it needed to be moved but they were not actually allowed to fire it or they could tra- they could make trans like they could transport equipment but they couldn't transport passengers and people
0: that must have been very frustrating for the women and i have to sort of wonder how well that actually worked for the government in the end right i mean if you have workers who are frustrated in that way and hemmed in, I don't think you get the best out of people. How how did that system work out in practice? Do Do you have any sense? I think that women ended up,
1: because they were, for the most part, very competent, which I think surprised the government and the men they were working with, they were able to do even more than they were asked to, even though the work they were doing was grueling and hard and monotonous and they pushed and showed that how much they could do and took more responsibility than they were even asked to.
0: In a nutshell, was there was there anything particular to Britain that encouraged women to be allowed to work as spies there for the first time in in kind of unprecedented numbers. They
1: were a little bit ahead of other countries. I mean at this point these women had more enfranchisement than many other women in other countries did. So I think okay. that was definitely a great way to help get their foot in the door for this as well.
0: And one question I'd love to know is just before we really dive into the day-to-day in the life of one of these female spies is what you think the modern day connotations of the word spy are. You know, what do, where do you think people get their idea of what spies are and do.
1: I think a lot of what we imagine spies to be is heavily influenced by things like James Bond, especially since he's British as well. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And if we look at these James Bond movies, at least for women spies, it's much more heavily male-centered. If there is a woman spy, she usually ends up becoming, you know, James Bond's lover or she dies. Something happens. Exactly.
0: So, or both, you know, you know, in, in in a particular order, hopefully, yeah. So,
1: so they don't. I think that spies are supposed to be powerful and have all this agency, but only when they're men. And the way that we view mm-hmm. women spies now are, um, you know, either as lovers or people like like they seduce people and that's how they get their work done rather than any real skill on their own part i mean even if we saw the new charlie's angels movie the the trailer starts off with Kristen stewart and she's seducing a man she's pretending to be uh, an escort and then she ends up strangling him and he's super into it which totally which totally undercuts her strength in that moment that she's doing something, she's being badass and she's turned into a joke.
0: All right, well let's, we're gonna do the best we can, Danielle, together here to dispel some of this. Let's take a deep dive into what it was really like in World War II for these women who were doing this really dangerous, really important work just as well as any man could do. Take us into a day in the life of a woman working as a spy in World War II Britain. She wakes up in the morning. What's on her mind? What's she worried about? You, well, I
1: think the biggest thing on every spy, especially the women's spy's mind, once they were out in the field, was making sure they weren't being tracked, to lose anyone who was following them. They constantly had to be on the move because otherwise they could be discovered. You weren't really supposed to radio from the same place because the Germans were always watching, always trying to to catch codes. And they could catch it, but then they wouldn't be able to decipher it. But if they could catch you, then they could crack the code. So it was of utmost importance that you weren't captured. So you were moving, moving constantly especially at the beginning um, because women weren't really used in the field until 1942. And once they first got out there, they were initially supposed to be used as couriers. Mostly men were supposed to do the really active work and women were supposed to just carry messages, which was supposed to be less dangerous.
0: That sounds pretty dangerous to me. You get caught with a message. What do you do? You eat it? I mean,
1: well, they had to find really ingenious ways to carry it around. Um, Sonia D'Artois, but she used to carry it. They were like sewn, the messages were sewn into her underskirts of her dresses. And I think it was Noor Inayat Khan who carried it, uh, her radio set. She actually ended up being a radio operator. She carried her radio set in an old violin case and tried to disguise it in that way so that people wouldn't be suspicious. And they needed to be really timely too, because if they were getting messages back and forth to different people, they had to be still on the go. They had to find and meet these people. They couldn't be late. Otherwise, information that needed to be given could be missed and dangerous things could happen and people could die. And there was always so much on the line.
0: Yeah, that sounds like that was a pretty heavy set of responsibilities and dangers on their shoulders. Wow. And so I understand they would have to be moving all the time. But even within that really mobile um, structure, was there any sort of sense of a a routine a spy might expect to have? Or were there typical typical tasks they would have to perform in a given day?
1: It would often depend. If they were in a network, usually there was a these smaller networks, and there would be one person at the lead and then two others, the courier and the radio operator. So on a day-to-day basis, they'd be given their orders from their master of the network. And then they'd be going off bicycle riding, walking with their partner, taking the train to deliver these messages, and then coming back in time um, and meeting up with the rest of their network in order to hear what was going on with the other networks and back home in England through the radio.
0: Wow. And so... When you talk about it that way, I'm just imagining loads and loads of small pods of these groups operating, because if you're talking about walking or bicycling to deliver a message, the catchment area is pretty small for any given courier.
1: Yes, it was pretty small, but sometimes even when they were bicycling, They were doing pretty extreme things like Nancy Wake. She she started off as a courier as well, even though she ended up being much more active later on. She talked about how she was in this battle um, with German forces. And in the aftermath, she was afraid that this message wasn't going to get across. So she bicycled 500 kilometers in order to send a situation report to the SOE in London. And when she got there, they didn't believe her because she wasn't the courier that was supposed to be there. And then she had to bicycle 500 kilometers back
0: oh no and so if somebody's trying to do this incognito what's the excuse i mean there wasn't any extreme cycling in that day uh, you know i've just got my violin case and i i thought i'd cycle 500 kilometers today that must have required great ingenuity
1: yes it definitely did great strength because i don't there aren't many people that could do that to, to, to bicycle 500 kilometers in a day so she had to really really push herself and have that like internal strength even more than that outward strength in order to achieve that yeah
0: I mean yeah the physical strength is paramount but frankly it's just the beginning right when you have all these worries about being discovered and and then my goodness being turned away when you get there with the message must have been rather gutting rather annoying too (laughs) <laughs> I wonder if it would have happened if it was a strange man who showed up. Hmm.
1: Yes. Well, at least in at at sometimes the the government back home were they were very cautious about it, but unfortunately they weren't always as cautious as they should have been and it ended up being to their detriment and a lot of the F section the Fran- the operatives in France um were lost a lot of information was lost because they weren't cautious about that. And one of the spies, Noor Inayat Khan, when she was captured, they broke her code, actually, because they were never supposed to write down the coded messages that they were receiving. They were never supposed to do that in case they were captured. Um, But she had actually copied out all the messages that she had sent because she had trouble um, sometimes deciphering the messages, so she needed to write it out. So even though she, when she was captured, she refused to reveal any of her secret codes, the Germans gained enough information from them uh, to, they started sending out false messages pretending to be her. And um, the government back home, even though there were some flags, they were like, oh, well, you know, she's, she's known for being heavy handed. You know, sometimes she's awkward with her messages. So it's probably still her and they didn't, Investigate any of the anomalies that would have indicated that those transmissions were being sent under enemy control. Um, so things like that, where they weren't being very cautious or t- taking all the precautions they needed to be, really was to their detriment.
0: Yeah, and so you you've mentioned uh, paper messages, uh, verbal uh, coded messages, and radio. Were there any other communications channels used in espionage at this time? They weren't really
1: supposed to be using other forms of communication, but sometimes they did use messages through the phone. Nancy Wake, for example, she knew she knew that she was being um, eavesdropped on on the phone, and so she had to actually still act in a way that she should have been acting without giving any information away, because if she didn't communicate certain things over the phone or talk about them, then they would have known something was suspicious, that they would have known she wasn't doing what she was supposed to be doing. So it was super, all these levels to it. So there was, there was somebody that she had helped to escape from prison, Major Ian Garrow, um, from a prison in Marseille, and she'd been pretending to be a relative of his, and that's how come she'd been able to visit him in prison. And so when she found out he escaped, she's like, "Oh, I, I shouldn't talk that I know about it." But then she's like, "I'm I'm supposed to be his relative. I would know, and I would be happy about it." So she called her husband and was celebrating it, and she was and she was you know trying to to undercut the Gestapo's interpretation of what might have happened.
0: Oh my gosh! And what became of her? Do you know? Nancy Wake
1: ended up. Um, the Gestapo did sort of figure out that. Who she was, Nancy Wake was somebody that they wanted. And she ended up escaping um, the country. And that's when she got recruited by the SOE. And she started working for them and with the French resistance for the rest of the war. And she was so disconnected from what was going on. Her husband, who was a very rich industrialist in France, they ended up, the Gestapo captured him and they ended up torturing her, him. They ended up torturing him for his for the whereabouts of his wife. And of course he didn't know, but he also didn't tell them anything and they murdered him. And she didn't even find out until after the war had ended.
0: Wow. So the danger was very real and not just for these women, but for everyone else close to them. Very much so. So you mentioned that women were recruited and drafted into specific jobs to support the World War II effort. And what in particular, were the credentials they would have been looking for in women to be acting as spies?
1: It depends on which section, I think, that they were going to recruit them for. But since the majority was in the, the F section in France, I'll sort of focus in on that. But it had a lot to do with your ability to speak French. So you, because you had to be able to pass as as a French native once you were there. If you were English, oh, you would immediately okay. be taken. You would, they would know because you weren't supposed to be there. So you had to be able to pass as French. So people that had spent a lot of time in France and spoke French really well, um, those were the top two things. And the SOE was actually one of the only agencies that was able to sidestep um the british national only rule that only allowed british citizens to serve as intelligence officers due to concerns about their loyalties so mm-hmm. the soe if, if if a person's talent was enough the organization could sidestep that and find a way to use them so like andre Burrell, who had been born and raised in france not england the agency ended up making an exception for her because of her french language skills and her ability to better blend into french society um, as long as they could prove, you know, that they were passionate about saving France, but they were still committed to Britain first and foremost.
0: Got it, and you've mentioned SOE a couple of times, Danielle. Could you, could you spell that out for us and tell us exactly what that, what that was?
1: sure the soe uh, stands for special operations executive which was a british intelligence agency that was formed in 1940 under the explicit orders of winston churchill because they wanted an agency an intelligence agency that was focused on sabotage Um, so that's what differentiated it from other intelligence organizations is that they were supposed to go into other countries and find ways to mess things up basically um
0: <laughs> so destroy not just seek information
1: yeah so of course every intelligence organization is supposed to be getting and recruiting information but they were more concentrated on getting and collecting information that meant that they could make harm to gestapo
0: forces so were they kind of like a quasi-terror organization i mean i use used that term loosely but um i think Perhaps they could be. I
1: think that a lot of the more, I quote, terrorist kind of acts that they would have done were usually done in partnership with French McKee resistance groups, which were, you know, groups of French freedom fighters that were on the ground and they would have like one person from the SOE that was uh, sort of their consultant that would use the intelligence that they were getting and use it to help direct these groups who would then commit those large acts of, I guess, terror, of specifically against the Gestapo. So Nancy Wake was one of those people once she joined the SOE. She was the liaison for a French McKee resistance group. And like they ransacked a Gestapo headquarters in mont And she actually killed somebody on that raid. Um, there's a She has this really great way of describing it where she said that she she was remembering it and she'd said in an interview that they taught this judo chop stuff with the flat of the hand of <sighs> SOE and she'd practiced away at it, but that was the only time she'd used it. Whack. And it killed him, all right? I was really surprised.
0: Yay. Yay, Nancy. Yay, <laughs> SOE. Now, this is a far cry from the, you know, being relegated to couriers, which we were speaking about earlier. Now, was that a different division of the british espionage machinery
1: no it just what happened was as the war went on and men were being displaced they were being captured they were dying the women were already out in the field so they had to step up and take these positions of leaders
0: oh okay so, so it evolved from sort yes. of a more passive and and safe role of being a courier to really being in the action uh to the point of of being involved in sabotage
1: Yes, definitely. The government never intended for these women to take on these roles, but as mistakes were made or as casualties happened, the women ended up having to take on more active roles to keep the unit, their network, and their work going and to protect themselves in the end. So while Wake wasn't supposed to lead the McKee resistance group, there was a death of a section leader and then she had to take over and she ended up leading more than 7,500 men.
0: Wow. That's amazing. And was that a common situation? I, I was sort of wondering if you could tell me how you know the gender lines worked in espionage. Were these women working in co-ed groups or mainly just with other women? They were usually
1: working in co-ed groups where there would be one woman who was partnered with a man and then they would have somebody who was their network leader. Um, because a man walking around alone was very suspicious. But if he had a woman walking with him, much less suspicious, and a woman by herself had no suspicions at all, pretty much.
0: Oh, how interesting. And why is that? Is that something to do with ideas that women have errands to do <laughs> for the house? I mean, unpick I, that for me. I
1: think, I think it did a little bit like, oh, the women, she's going to the grocery store. She's going to pick this up. She has errands to do. So it wasn't suspicious that she was out and about during the day while men, you know, are supposed to be working. They're supposed to be oh. at their jobs. Why is he suspiciously walking around the square at this time of day? Where? Why doesn't he have a job? Why isn't he doing something? But also because people didn't really suspect women because women hadn't really been used in this capacity very often or very widely. And so they, they weren't suspicious. And a lot of people, because of how gender roles and, and misogyny, they didn't think that women could or were capable of doing those kinds of things. So they didn't suspect them.
0: Right. A uh, Way to use gender role on its head and just, yeah. Make, make something new out of it. That's fantastic, actually. What was the public view of women participating in this kind of activity? I mean, I I know their identities were meant to be secret, but uh, in principle, you know, in the abstract, what did women not involved in espionage think of those who were? Do we know?
1: I think there wasn't a whole lot known just because women weren't supposed to be involved in it. Like specifically because of the Geneva Convention and the Hague Convention, there were specifically no protections for women As combatants so most people couldn't even envision women acting in those kinds of roles because what women would be crazy enough to go out into into war without any kind of protection even less than a man would have so I think there was a lack of perception to it and when they came back and people started to find out that women were involved it depended on their story on their background how the the public perceived them I think that women that maybe had more tragic of stories or more high class of backgrounds were more well received than those women who didn't or had had gone against society's dictates in some way. Because we have Violet Shabo and she was a young woman with a baby and her husband was killed um, at war. And that's why she enlisted. Um, She was very moved by the sacrifice that her husband had made. And she ended up dying in out in the field. And they made movies about her. Her daughter was celebrated. She came from a, a higher class family. And so she was very well received by people. But if we think of Christina Granville, she was um, Jewish and she was Polish. Um, she had been a countess. And she had done a lot as a spy, but she was also bisexual. And she was very open about it. And she'd had men and women lovers All over the place. And because of uh, her background as Jewish and Polish and as bisexual, the government and the public were not open to her at all. She was not well received Um, and she, especially when she was, she was killed. She was killed by a former lover that felt spurned. Um, and so then oh, the government no. and people were really like, She oh, made it
0: through a spying career, but she, she fell victim to a lover's scorn. That's, that's terrible. <laughs> that's something very yeah. sad about that. So like public um, perception of her wasn't very positive. Um,
1: and a lot of these women too, when they came back, some of them were under orders. Like they weren't allowed to talk about a lot of things. They weren't allowed to share it. And we can also look at the really extreme case of Eileen Niern, who was a spy in France. And she'd been held in Ravensbrück, which was the only all-women's concentration camp. And it's where a number of the women spies that were captured were held. And we're not even 100% sure of all the atrocities that she suffered at the hands of the Nazis while she was in this camp. Um, but she ended up escaping. But when she came back from the war, she never spoke of it ever again. No one knew she'd ever been involved in the military, had been abroad, had done anything. And it wasn't until she died and she didn't have any immediate family in the area. So the townspeople were going through her belongings that they found any record that she had actually been involved or what she had done.
0: Oh, wow. Wow. And why do you think, why do you think she kept mom for so long? I think she had a lot of,
1: scars emotional scars from what she experienced and and didn't like revisiting that time but also she felt like it was something that shouldn't be shared it was it was top secret it was classified it wasn't something to be shared and she took it to her grave wow were these women paid well for this work they were absolutely not paid very well um, <laughs> they were not paid well and they were poorly recognized, which is why this kind of work especially fell to women of higher classes because they didn't need to oh, be Oh, they paid. could afford
0: to do it.
1: <laughs> yes, they could, they could afford to go for months or even years without really being paid. So that's why a lot of the time, aside from languages and not being needed to be paid, and um, and the fact that they could blend more easily into different social situations than people of lower classes made higher class women a lot more likely to be recruited as as women spies
0: yeah and can you walk us through kind of a typical recruitment process for one of these women of, of any class
1: sure so a lot of it was done through talent spotting basically no one applied to work for the soe because people weren't supposed to know that the soe existed the applicants ended up being funneled to them. So women would apply to work for organizations like the Royal Air Air Force um, or Fanny, and then they would be chosen for special employment. And they wouldn't know what that meant. They didn't know that they had been, you know, earmarked for secret work, and they'd be sent to a really sketchy interview and ask questions about like their loyalty and their French, and, and they would be tested to see how that would go and, and sort of observed. And if they passed the test, then they would offer them a secret position and they would have to be enrolled with one of these organizations like the Royal Air Air Force or some other organization. And that would sort of be their like, this is my cover, and then not actually do anything with them. And their family would think that that's what they were doing, but they actually were involved in all the secret work.
0: So was there any danger in turning it down? I mean, could they turn it down? Because they'd be sort of uh, between a rock and a hard place, right? They'd know about this organization now. Could they say no? They could say
1: no because they didn't know exactly what organization it was, or um, or really what what kind of work they would be doing. They'd just be like, "We have something. We have we have a use for your skills." that we really need you to do. It could be dangerous. We'd need you to Ah, give up this time. You know, it's really dependent on how patriotic you are. Are you willing to do this for your country? And they'd give them time to think about it. And some of them did say no. Most of them said yes. And then sometimes they would say yes, and then sort of rethink the situation and be like, you know what, I don't know that I'm actually cut out for this, which then put the organization in sort of a hot spot because they hadn't really contemplated how to deal with uh, people who ended up not being suited for the work or changing their minds. And that was for women and men. Um, it was a problem across the board where they were like, well, like we got to keep these people in limbo for the rest of the war. They can't go back. I, I mean, did they
0: disappear? Did people disappear? I <laughs> just sort of wonder. <laughs>
1: Instead of disappearing, a lot of the time they would be, you know, like in the Kingsman movie and uh, Eggie has to go to this big manor in the middle of the countryside and nobody really knows where he is. He's just away. You know, um, they would just be kept at these training uh, facilities. A lot of a lot of them that they used that weren't women, that were men were actually prisoners that they were using because of their language skills for prisoners of war. Um, and a lot of times they would find the prisoners of war weren't actually in the end the best option for spying.
0: Yes. Uh, going to say, are they really loyal we- enough?
1: Yeah, and, and they would end up keeping the men in prison, just, just put them back in prison, and they'd be in isolation because they couldn't go back to the general population of the prison because then they could talk about it, so different things like that.
0: Oh, such complexity and layers, and what, were there any worries unique to female spies in these organizations?
1: I think that some men were really concerned, you know, it's that misogyny coming out, if women could really cut it, if they could do it, if they could do it as well as men, if they were strong enough to do the tasks, or if they were caught to stand up under interrogation. There were a lot of instances of instructors, like if they were teaching them how to parachute, they'd have the women go first, because they felt that that made the men work harder to prove themselves. I think another big concern for women specifically was the risk that they could face for rape because that was a big concern yeah. that most men didn't really have to consider. And it could be rape just while they were out in the field by people who didn't even know they were a spy but who attacked them just because they were women. This happened to Sonia D'Artois but She was out in the field and she was raped by two uh, Gestapo soldiers. Just They caught her, she was a pretty girl, and they raped her. And she was so concerned about it making her look weak as an operative that she didn't tell her partner that she had been raped until the next day um, after it had happened to bring it up to her partner. And she began by saying, something rather disagreeable happened to me last night. She tells him what happened. And then she was very nonchalant and was like, luckily, they didn't discover the American passes sewn into my underskirts. Because that was what was most important to her, you know? That's why she didn't fight, because obviously she had been taught how to fight back. And maybe she couldn't have overpowered them. She could have done something, but that would have given her away as somebody who was trained in combat. So she just let them do what they yeah. wanted so that she wouldn't be discovered as a spy because she didn't want them to find those things on her. And her oh, partner- Wow. He was completely speechless at her cavalier attitude, but it was an attitude that she felt required to take in order to keep her standing in his eyes because her susceptibility... I don't really like that, but her susceptibility to sexual assault as a woman would have made her a liability as a spy. So to show her strength and to prove that she could handle being a spy like any man could, she waited until the next day to even report her assault, and then she brushed over it as lightly as she could, because to do otherwise would be a weakness on her part. She could have been seen as a hysterical and unreliable partner.
0: Yeah, that's an incredible story, actually, Danielle. I mean, there's so many layers that one can unpick and which you, you actually have, have already begun to do. and I, I'm really struck by that idea that she knew she couldn't fight back because if she did, they would immediately suspect she wasn't just a pretty girl, but a woman who had training that might make her a threat to their war effort. That's, in, that's incredible.
1: The the also sexual assault was used as a weapon of interrogation and to break women that were captured. So Nor Inayat Khan was a very specific example of this where she was treated very, very poorly once she was captured. She was kept naked in chains almost for such a large portion of her captivity. And she was repeatedly raped by guards um, and treated really horribly. She and three other women spies... It's not officially, there's no physical proof yet, but it's accepted by most historians that these four women were executed at Dachau concentration camp together. But we have uh, anecdotal evidence that says that the three, the first three were killed and then they kept Nora overnight to torture and rape her a little bit longer before they executed her in the morning. And she, I think, bore a lot more of the brunt of the sexual assault because she was uh, Indian. So it was a racist oh. thing as well, oh, wow. where they were treating her even less humanly than they might have a white woman.
0: And, I mean, I, I, I know that all, all's fair in love and war, as they say, and all, all decent human behavior often goes out the window in warfare. But were there any protections for men that would have prevented this sort of treatment, being kept naked and chained up for for days on end, you know, under the Geneva Convention or other um, diplomatic agreements?
1: Not that I'm really aware of. I could could be wrong, but not that I know of. I think it was sort of a respect thing, but the, they didn't respect these women. They had, I think, less respect for women that were captured or acting, for acting as spies than they did for men. And they treated them even worse than the men in a lot of cases because of this.
0: Well, and, and do you think misogyny plays a role in that?
1: I definitely think misogyny played a role in this into also that these men would be frustrated and angry at these women who were deceiving them and pulling one over on them. And they would be even angrier at them.
0: And, were there ever any examples of women for example participating in espionage on behalf of Germany? There were some. A lot of the time
1: the the best like the best known case I think is uh Blonde Poison. Have you ever
0: heard of her? I've not, but she's got a great name.
1: Yes, it is a really great uh name and her story basically she was a Jewish woman who was captured in germany she'd been in hiding and they ended up finding her um, and capturing her family and they basically said we won't kill your family if you help us like uncover other other jewish people in hiding and so she was forced to spy and turn in other jewish people um and she ended up being considered um a really big traitor her name was stella goldschlag
0: Blonde Poison's got a little bit more of a a good Marvel Comics ring to it, I think.
1: (laughs) Yes, definitely. She was given that name by the Gestapo who reveled in her treachery.
0: I bet they didn't treat her too well either. I can only imagine they would have said, look, this horrible Jewish woman, look what she does. She proves us right.
1: Yeah, she was treated horribly. I think she was, she was Aryan, she was blonde and blue-eyed, she was still a Jew. And I think that caused them to abuse her even more. And it's why she was able to get away with this spying, because she didn't look stereotypically Jewish.
0: So we've talked a lot about individual women acting in various espionage missions um, in various capacities. Were there any you know, sort of group dynamics? Did women partner up in any way, whether officially or unofficially, that you've seen evidence for?
1: Well, a lot of, I think that the solidarity that the women created was often um, not created out in the field, but either in training before they went out or once they were captured and were held in captivity together. So there was a really great bond between Andre Borel and Lise de Bysack, uh two women spies, and they had sort of been in training together, but they were actually on the same plane together to be parachuted off into France. And they actually did, oh, the, well, okay. they did the trip twice because the first time they went out, it ended up not being safe. So they had to fly all the way back. And so um, they really bonded being in these tight, dangerous experiences together. Um Andre ended up being executed, so she was not able to reconnect with Lise after the war, at least uh, thankfully did live throughout the war. There were also instances of this female camaraderie between the women when they were in captivity, so the women that were executed together at Dachau who rode the train in together and were held together and who knew what, were, what was coming up the pike for them and that was a very bonding experience. And there was also a group of four women that were executed together at the Natzweiler camp. And so they were very bonded uh, by their experience leading up to it, knowing what was going to happen. And the same with the women who were held at the Ravensbrück camp, who at that all women's camp. And they didn't only bond with each other, but with all the other women being held there. Because they didn't, a lot of the time, especially at Ravensbrück, they didn't know the other spies and they couldn't reveal that they were spies, so how could they connect with others they didn't know? So a lot of the time they, they didn't realize it. Yeah,
0: that must have been just incredibly stressful <laughs> all around for, for everybody. Um, you, you mentioned training. I, can you tell us a little bit about the kind of training these women might've gotten?
1: A lot of the time these women were taken to, like I mentioned before, like these big manor houses in the middle of the English countryside and trained. And they were trained how to use the radio set and how to operate in code. Um, they had to learn about like, strategies, what to do, what situations, what information could you not divulge. They had to learn how to be interrogated without, being, without giving anything away. They had to be physically strengthened and toughened up. Um, they also had to be emotionally strengthened as well. So those were some of the experiences that they had while they were being trained.
0: You've mentioned some very um, poignant diary entries that some of these women spies have left behind documenting their experiences. Do we have any self-reflective statements about what these women might have thought about this work they were doing and how, how they felt about it?
1: So there was Josephine Butler, who was in Churchill's secret circle, and she was the only woman involved in that. And she survived the war, and she talked about this dream, this reflection that she had. And Nancy Wake did write an autobiography, but she's a very she writes very flippantly about her experiences, and she doesn't really reflect so much on that aspect. But for example, Josephine Baker wrote, I seemed to be above the earth, and I was looking down on the British Isles. The seas around were very turbulent. I could not see any other country. Then I looked up and saw crowds of people, men, women, children, and many people in uniform. I heard my own voice saying, Are you all dead? When did you die? A young airman stepped forward, very fair, his eyes a vivid blue. He held a red rose in his hand, which he slowly dropped. It seemed to grow larger until it covered the whole of Britain. I heard his voice saying, it does not matter when we died. What matters is how we died. All wars are futile. You must declare peace in the world.
0: Wow, that's some dream.
1: (laughs) Yes, it was. So this is just an example of the reflection that she felt. And I think these reflections share why they felt so passionately about doing dangerous, underpaid work as well. Yeah.
0: And did the work of these women as spies shape gender roles and perspectives beyond the World War II era?
1: I definitely think it did because these women did such a, they made such an impact that from then on, women were involved in the military, whether as spies or not, and able to take on bigger and better positions as they went. So I definitely think it made a big impact for for women in the military and for women at large.
0: Yeah. And do you have any views? um, You know, clearly, we've come a long way since this femme fatale and that sort of the the Hollywood imagery of of female espionage um, in World War II and any time, really. Are there any ways that you think we can still make progress on that front? I definitely think so.
1: When I started doing this research initially, there isn't a lot of primary resources because some a lot of these women died or they didn't really write any diaries of this time Um, And almost all of the documentation by the SOE was destroyed in a mysterious fire in 1946 so there aren't a lot of Curious is it really a mysterious fire? (laughs) That's what they maintain. I think the sources that we have a lot of the time they're biography and because there isn't so much material on a lot of these women it'll be like a collection of biographies like here are 25 profiles of women in the SOE and they each get like a chapter which isn't really Mm. that in depth when you think about it but if you really analyze the language and the way that these biographies are written it's actually really concerning um when I was there was a a book of biographies written by Lieutenant Beryl Escott and every time that she would write about these women spies the whole book is about women spies specifically and she every time she referred to a spy at large she would say he Ah. (laughs) and i was like very confused why you would do that and she would also interject her opinion about these women spies what she thought their thoughts were and she would basically denigrate their work in the way that she talked about them so she talked about spy Mary Catherine Herbert and how she was assigned to work you know for the organizer of the scientist circuit who was Claude Debizac who was actually the brother of another one of the spies least de bisac that I mentioned earlier and escott wrote you know claude was an attractive forceful man the son of one of the richest and noblest families in Mauritius mary must have been delighted to find out that she was to be his courier and i'm like where, where did you get that how can you insert these words in her thought or like she created this in her monologue for spy Cecile Mar- Margo Lefort, and she wrote, Poor Cecile, how often she must have recalled her comfortable past. Did she ever regret her decision to take on such dangerous work? Was her love for her husband still out of her reach? A sufficient motive? It was a hard and unforgiving life, and at 43 years old, she was not as young and resilient as most of the others who undertook it. I, I just thought it was so strange that Escott felt that she could speak for these women, and then she would feminize them for her readers maybe it's kind
0: of condescending the language that you just shared
1: she was like trying to make them distinctively women so like they were spies but to the writer they were first and foremost women so i she didn't provide any citations for any of these really judgmental remarks that she makes and escott herself was a woman in the military but yet even she found it appropriate to so blatantly gender her subjects without their consent or without their own words to support it which I found frustrating. And I was, if another example is, um, there's Sidney Hudson, who was a male spy for the SOE, and he released a diary, but there were a lot of sections in his memoirs when he had female partners, where he would offhanded, offhandedly include details that showed that he was belittling his partner and treating her differently because she was a woman. There was like a span within a span of fifty pages, the sections that were describing the period where he was in France and he was first partnered with Muriel Bick and then Sonia D'Artois, but and he refers to both women as pretty or attractive more than a dozen times in fifty pages. Mm. And those details had no bearing on whether those women were or weren't completing their duties. Um, he, he did really inappropriate things that he talks about, like when he first got parachuted into France with Muriel, and there was a third man who parachuted down with them. He got out of his parachute, and he waited till Muriel got out of hers. And then he grabbed her and dipped her into a kiss to, I guess— oh to celebrate that they had made it, but he didn't know her at all. And he, had, he himself had parachuted before and he talks about that in his diary and how he had to impress this beautiful young thing that was his new partner.
0: Well, that just leads us smack into this question of, you know, what kind of tension do you think there might've been between assumptions about what this kind of woman was and how these women actually were or viewed themselves. You know, it's the femme fatale thing again. I mean, how do we get around it? Why is this so pernicious a problem when women do a job that men do and it really has nothing to do with their looks? So I think it's also really important to
1: note that when the women spies were successful, they were denigrated for that success too. And a lot of the time it was their femininity itself that was being scorned or being denigrated. Basically, they would face a lot of discrimination for that. So if we talk about Josephine Butler again, who was again the only female member of Churchill's secret circle, she would get a lot of these backhand comments like, Churchill asked her handler if she was truly ready for her assignment, and he said, quite sure, sir. She's a past, she's passed every test without flinching. I think she has enormous courage. She is the coolest approach of an, in any woman I know, and of most men. But like, later on, she would meet somebody, there was a man she met named Jules, who was one of her contact. and at the end of their first encounter, he said to his companion, you're sure she's a woman? She thinks like a man and things like that. And there's this really great story with Winston Churchill himself, where he made problematic statements about Josephine and her female identity, despite being the one to recruit her and ultimately benefit from her actions. So there's this anecdote when they were discussing a tricky mission, it was decided, you know, no man could get away with it. Someone then suggested a woman might succeed, but this idea was also scorned. It would take more than sex to bring it off. Churchill had nodded and then said, but supposing we had a woman who was 95% brain and 5% sex? A robot, said someone else. Why, have you got one up your sleeve? And that was supposed to be a description of me, Josephine inquired. It was meant as a compliment, JB. And Josephine ended up actually confronting Churchill about his comments. She went up to him and she, she she said, I suppose, sir, that being a freak helped freak he said mystified and looked at the major your remark about 95 percent brain i saw by churchill's expression half caught out half amused that recollection had dawned let me tell you sir i said that you are quite wrong about the other five percent i have as much sex as any woman given the time and place he burst out laughing then with a lift of the (laughs) eyebrows inquired you wouldn't care to tell me what time and what place i had no reply ready he usually managed to have the last word. So even when confronted directly with the fact that their statements and their actions towards women spies were made in poor taste, a lot of the time the men didn't back down. No apology was made despite realizing perhaps they were in the wrong, though the conversation between Butler and Churchill was begun and instigated by her in, you know, the final showdown between them as just an example.
0: Wow. (laughs) It is just amazing. It's like damned if you do, damned if you don't. You there's know? no winning. No, there's no winning. And and you know, I I I wish I could say I thought that we're outside of those binary um, binary constructs, which try to define people as one thing or another. And and it's as if it's some zero sum game. It's really it's crazy.
1: I think what really ties into it is how England and Britain viewed espionage at this time period, because they really kind of looked their, their noses down on it. They only wanted to engage in gentlemanly tactics, you know, so they didn't want to be, um, they didn't want to be snitches, basically, it was beneath them. And Churchill himself called the SOE, the ministry—you know—the Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare—that this was supposed to be dirty work. It wasn't supposed to be gentlemanly. It was supposed to be against the grain. But I actually think that the idea of this—this this Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare—actually shows just why women are the perfect candidates for being spy during this war. How more ungentlemanly can you get than to not be a gentleman and to be a woman instead? I think. Especially for spies, I think there was this binary that they were split into. So there was always the femme fatale, you know. But there's also the other side of that binary uh, where they're like, it's like the Madonna and the whore binary, basically, Mm. is how these spies were viewed. And they were either really innocent and asexual or they were overly promiscuous and voluptuous and seductive. And that's how they got through it. And I think that's just it's still very problematic today. And there was a lot of backlash, but especially like one of the the spy master for the F section, he was stayed in England, but he oversaw that whole network in France. And he really fought back against these insinuations that women should never have been allowed to be spies. And he has a really great quote, and he name drops these women, these strong, powerful women who were successful, who gave up their lives. And he wrote. Those of us who know the work done by women like Violetta Shabo, Nor Inayat Khan, Denise Bloch among those who died, and by Elise DeBysack, the sisters Jacqueline and Eileen Niren, and Nancy Wake among those who survived can only feel anger and contempt for those who try to denigrate Baker Street by questioning the ability of women to fight alongside men and who impugn the efficiency of headquarters by doubting the readiness of brave women to face perils and if necessary, to die for their countries. These women did an invaluable job and one for which, whatever people may say, they were admirably suited.
0: Right on. Thank you. <laughs> At least somebody got got that memo. Yeah, it is remarkable though. And this Madonna whore construct, it it's pervasive throughout history, I'm gonna say. And I think it it, it exists in the present day in many respects and in many arenas, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, I agree with that 100%.
0: And so I'm not sure how familiar you are with the modern spy industry versus that in the World War II era, but can you give us a a sense even very generally of how state espionage has changed since World War II? I think that there, I don't, you're right, I don't know as much about modern espionage
1: and intelligence gathering, but I think that there are definitely a lot more women involved Definitely a lot more. And I think that the the landscape of it has sort of changed. There's a lot more technology uh, and that techn- technology helps people to spy more efficiently. But the other side to that technology is that there are a lot of ways to hack into it and break it down.
0: Yeah, so I, I
1: think espionage is more dangerous today, perhaps, than it ever was because now people can do things with impunity. You can make people... People like women who would be who were fighting during World War II, they still had past, they had records. It wasn't like they were wiped off the surface of the planet once they were um, enlisted. But now, when you're a spy, you're gone. And so, it's very easy for people to just disappear, to never be heard from again, um, and to lose track of those people, which I think is a, another great pity.
0: Yeah, I think it would be absolutely terrifying to even ponder the possibility of being a spy these days. I mean, there's nothing secret. you know I mean, if you believe what, what we hear, I mean, uh, there are corporations listening to our every conversation and tracking every algorithm that passes across our computer and phone screen. So I find it hard to imagine how secrets are even kept when uh, digital channels of communication are used. Absolutely. So, all right, well, I'm just going to thank you then, Danielle. Thank you so much. This
1: was such a wonderful opportunity to talk about my favorite things and really great depth that usually most people would tap out of much earlier. So I appreciate it.
0: Oh, Danielle, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. You'll never know who shot first. But as you rounded the last corner before handing off your coded message, a lightning-quick crossfire erupted between the Maquis and the Germans. Your partner's cover was blown, and it ended fast. They were killed, and a stray bullet found its way into your leg. It didn't hurt nearly as much as the raw emotion you had to swallow at the sight of your friend dead in the street. But you needed assistance. Not for yourself, but for the message you carried. It had to be delivered or others would die too. The Germans thought you were an innocent bystander, so the German lieutenant ordered his men to help you. He had a soft spot for blondes anyway. A month later and here you are, back home in England, at this fundraiser, caught in your memories while the other ladies play cards. You wonder if what you did, what you risked, made a difference. You hope it did you believe it did. But now you face a whole new problem. Your family and friends don't know you now. Not really. And you don't know what's coming next for the war or for yourself. But anything is possible as your years of successful missions prove. For Crown, for Country, and for yourself. espionage is by its nature a risky business. So Danielle's harrowing wartime tales of women behind enemy lines are, you know, in some ways, just what you'd expect. What's striking, however, is how much more was asked of these women as compared to their male counterparts in exchange for the opportunity to risk everything to serve their country as spies. On top of lower pay, less responsibility, and lower prestige, there was the age-old split-shift familiar to working mothers everywhere, and the threat of sexual assault heightened in wartime fieldwork. And when their duty was complete, the very country that had shown these women their true potential, the path to unlock it, expected them to slip right back into the domestic sphere they had come from. But this would prove an impossible task for those who had tasted life outside of Pandora's box. Can you blame them for wanting to remain free? Hey there. You can follow today's guest at Danielle Wersantz on Twitter. That's at Danielle W-I-R-S-A-N-S. And we're so happy to be back. We have an epic season ahead for you. Sailors, tiger hunters, blacksmiths, gladiators, and ministers are just some of the topics we'll be exploring this season. As always, we're on social media with plenty of exciting show updates and additional content please share your thoughts and questions with us at WorkingOTSeries on Twitter. And give us a follow at WorkingOvertimeSeries on Instagram. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really does help get the word out. And share the show with the history lovers in your life. Thanks so much for listening.